this thing that is, but we often cannot see. Too close for us to see the magnitude, the glory of this structure. We often see the detail, but not the stretching, sweeping scale of the thing. It wraps us up, holds us, so we consider it gentle, warm, kind. We do not see, though, the violent nature, the wrath and hate for the converse, our sin. We do not see the scale. We touch what is visible through our tunnel eyes and say, Grace. But we see only a fragment of the grand, scandalous tapestry that God has woven together over time. The fabric of the world itself, the very reason the stars are strung together. When we choose to put one foot in front of the next, it's grace. This gracious glory buried within us, beating on our ribs to speak of His wonder. With this touch, life is given. The giver's love is this cloak, this sea of blue-green forgetfulness, this face of majesty, the crackling, roaring thunder, grace, His sound, glory, His bright display, breaks and creates and finds us and we're found. The split curtain, the opened back, the mingling blood and water, the flood that destroys the world we've built, all the earth submitting to his power, the cross, grace wrapped in triumph and glory. He is the eyes shut embrace the driving rain the wind blows but only at his word and this same fury this sin thrashing storm is the tempest that bows to wash our feet and this same fury this sin thrashing storm is the tempest that bows to wash our feet is the tempest that bows to wash our feet. Grace, so powerful yet so misunderstood. Such a life and universe changing thing, yet we oftentimes struggle to experience it or to dispense it. Grace, amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Some years ago, there was a Mensa conference in San Francisco. And I don't know if you know what Mensa is. I didn't know, at least until I read this illustration. It's a national organization for people who have an IQ of 140 or higher. So, of course, I wouldn't have known about it. Well, several of the Mensa members went out for lunch at a local cafe, and when they sat down, one of them discovered that the salt was in the pepper shaker and the pepper was in the salt shaker. So they all put their heads to this in their high IQ way, and they decided, how are we going to transfer the salt back into the pepper and the pepper back into the salt without spilling any? And they thought, and they hashed, and they thought, and they hashed, and they finally came up with a plan. Um, They debated it, 
And their plan, it was a brilliant solution involving a napkin, a straw, and an empty saucer. And so they called the waitress over and they were going to dazzle her with their intelligence. And they said, ma'am, we couldn't help but notice that the, the pepper shaker contained salt and the salt shaker pepper. But before they could show her, the waitress interrupts and she says, oh, I'm sorry about that. And she bends over and she switches the tops on the shakers. Brilliant, right? Isn't it amazing how often we try to take something that is so simple and so true and convoluted and make it difficult and hard? And, and I think grace fits that bill. <laughs> amazing grace. What a gift that that is offered to us. Grace. Remember last week, if you were here last week, and I want to go over through the first couple points just so we're all on the same page today. If you weren't at EWC on Sunday. Um, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? Wretch. That saved a wretch like me. And we often, I, I, somebody actually told me on the way into church this morning that, that they get it. They get how big of a wretch they are. It's true. That, that has to be our first conclusion that we can't do this on our own. That we are a wretch. That we are empty. But the only way that we can determine that is if we actually compare ourselves to a righteous, all-powerful, perfect God, not one of others. Because generally what we do on an everyday basis is we think to ourselves, I'm better than that guy, I'm better than that guy, I'm better than her, I'm better than him. And we compare ourselves that way. And we say, well, I'm not such a bad guy after all. Right? I mean, as we said last week, wretch, the word wretch defines murderers and rapists and child molesters and, and terrorists. That describes them, but not me. But when we benchmark ourselves against the absolute perfection of a holy God, we come to a quick realization that we are, in fact, a wretch. The all-powerful, all-knowing, never makes a mistake, never thinks shoulda, woulda, coulda. That's not our God. Wish I had done that differently. Shouldn't have allowed that. Never comes through the mind of God. Ever. Happens to us every day. It's hard for us to grasp sometimes, isn't it? Because we think to ourselves, I think maybe God missed it on this one. I can't believe why God would have allowed this to happen when he has the power to change. I mean, uh, it's hard for us, especially when something difficult happens, like a seven-month-old is shot and killed by his dad, or a barely three-hour-year-old baby dies. It just doesn't seem right to us. Cancer. Death. And we wonder why, God. And and then we not only wonder why, God, but we think to ourselves, I would have done this differently. I think I have a better plan. I wouldn't have allowed this. But despite the reality of the pain and the sadness, because it's very real, our God is absolutely perfect. Infallible. We are imperfect. 
lost and in the need of a rescuer and his grace. A former youth group student of mine had this to say this week on on Facebook. I get that we are in no place to question God. The amazing creator of the universe who breathed us into existence, who spoke and there was light, who has all the stars in the heavens numbered and knows every intimate detail about us, but there are days and many circumstances when I just wish we could understand him and his ways past our own human limitations. But he is God and we are not so much hurt to pray for. It's true. It's real. We feel it. Just because grace is available doesn't mean we don't experience pain and hurt and doubt. Job was in that place. I mean, talk about perplexity. Job lost everything. All, and if we read the story of Job, all because of a conversation that God had with Satan. Oh, man, I don't get that conversation at all. But it happened, and it's recorded for us. And, and we find in Job 42, verses 1 through 5, it's going to be on the, the screen up here. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job only comes to that conclusion in his life because he lost everything. I'm not sure any one of us would come to that conclusion right there if life was just all cherries and roses for us. We would think that somehow we had something to do with it. And the dad of that little three our old baby that died reflected for a moment the next day and he had this to say. And I quote, I don't understand this and this isn't the verse that I thought would come to mind to comfort me, but it has. Job 121, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, the previous chapters in Job give a good description of our God's power, amazing power. It, you might jot in your notes, read, um, read the last few chapters of the book of Job. And you see the power of God to create, to move, to control, to save And he uses that power on your behalf and on mine. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He lived a perfect life and then he gave himself up. They didn't take it from him. He surrendered his life to the cross. He became the sacrificial lamb. Now, why would he do that? Why would Jesus do that? It doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus do that for you and for me? For the world that turned its back on him, spit in his face, said we can do it better. 
He uses that power in your life and in mine every day. The second statement, last week they were questions, today they're statements. The second statement is this, behold grace in all its beauty. That's an action thing for us. Let's behold grace in all its beauty. John chapter 1 verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, those came through Jesus Christ. The law says, this is, when you match yourself up to the law, this says how short you are. The fact that you can't get there, you can't do it. God gave that to us through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the, fulfills the, re, the requirements of the law on our behalf. If we got what we deserve, we're toast. If we got what we truly deserved, we would not have a Savior. God would have judged us quickly and completely. He is just, however. Now, really quickly, um, the, I'm just going to give the illustration once from last week. Uh, you, finish, you finish your taxes. You fill them all out. You, you're, you're going to the post office and you smile as you put the envelope in thinking they'll never know. Six months later, you're standing before the auditor. Two months later, you're standing before a judge having been found guilty now for tax fraud. And you're facing, the judge says, the verdict is three years in jail for this. And then you go and, and you're put in jail and you serve that three years and then, you know, on the last day you get out. You've paid your debt to society. That's justice. That, that's an illustration of justice. Justice is getting precisely what you deserve. That's justice. Same situation. Everything happens. You're found guilty. The judge says, guilty, here's your sentence, three years, but if you serve the first two, I'm going to let you out for the third. We'll put an ankle bracelet on you and keep track of you, but you can live that last year with your family. That's called mercy. That's called mercy. That's getting less than you deserve. And God is often merciful to us. Third one, same situation. But before you're able to walk into that jail cell, the judge comes and says, hey, you know what? Justice has been served as it had to be. The the verdict was found. You were found guilty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he pushes you aside and says, I'm going to serve this sentence for you. Goes in the jail cell, pulls the door shut. And himself serves that. And you're dumbfounded at the, the, the actions of this judge. You can't believe that he would do this. However, I would also suggest that in our entitlement society, many people would say, oh, I deserve that. Thank you. We've got to shift out of that because that's not where we are. We are wretches before a perfect and holy God. Grace is offered. And grace is receiving a wonderful gift that you don't deserve. Someone once said to me, we preach grace and we preach grace and we preach grace and when someone finally believes and becomes a part of the church, we hit them with the law. You ever feel like that? 
You ever feel like you just experienced a bait and switch? Maybe you do. Maybe you have felt that way. And and one reason could be that rules and commands and laws are a whole lot more tangible than grace. They're measurable. I'm a rule, black and white kind of guy. I like to know what the boundaries are and what the rules are. And then I want to follow them. Graces can be difficult for me. Derek talked about Dave Roney. I could talk about Derek in the same way, to be honest. I met Derek in 1986 at the University of Wyoming. We both went on to kind of do our own things, but he came here as the youth pastor, and then after I graduated and farmed for a year, got a call and came here. We went on a mission trip together back east to the Hollers. Literally, the Hollers. And then when we got back, and, and, and Derek, as I think about our lives and, and, and how they've progressed through time and difficult things and grace and forgiveness and mercy and all of those things, I think today that both you and I would say that we have experienced mercy and grace in our life and, and that it has done amazing things and that we are not who we were 20 years ago. Praise God, by the grace of God. And, and, and we all need to understand that, that, that as we go through every day the process of life, it's a journey, it's a process. And, and, and some people in this room are not in the same place that you are. And, and we shouldn't judge that, but we should have grace and mercy as we experience this journey together. But we do like the law, and we do like to point and say I'm better than that other person. And, and this, I think, this, this idea of law and grace is, is where the rub starts. So, so some churches or some people, to avoid the impression that, that, that we are all about the law, they go, they swing the pendulum all the way to the other side and they say, well, as a believer, as a Christ follower who has been covered by the blood of Jesus, you could just do whatever you want. The, the blood of Jesus has covered you, so just live however you want. Do what, make whatever decision you want to. Well, that's just not so, biblically. And Paul, importantly, points that out in Romans. He's, he's anticipating, in fact, the questions that the Roman uh, people are having as he's writing this letter to them. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And Paul is anticipating the rationalizations of the people that he's writing to. He knows that they're going to say, well, then I should just go on sinning so that grace may abound. He he writes in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. There are commands in Scripture. 
Jesus teaches us what he expects and what is best for us. And we often rebel against those things, and we go our own way, and we do our own things, and we find that those things cause pain and hurt and the necessity of healing in our life. We make excuses. We think that our ways are better. But I want to suggest this morning that there's a balance between those two things, between law and grace, between commands, between rules or boundaries, and the fact that there is no possible human, earthly or supernatural way that we could earn the forgiveness of God all on our own. There's a balance. And we are in, a, in the midst of a process. Grace, it's like this. Grace isn't a free license to go on sinning. But it's equally important that we don't get hung up on trying to earn our way because we can't. When we behold God's grace in all its beauty and the Holy Spirit is working and living in us, transforming us from the inside out, we become more like Christ. And, and in this process, we begin to live our lives and make decisions every day based on, on his work in us and not on our own thoughts and attempts to achieve something. Grace is a huge topic. But it's one that's very powerful in, in our lives. And this morning, as we go through essentially the title of the message, Living Grace, we're going to look at four things real quick. Four, four, four ways in which we live grace. And, and, and it's sort of a, a two-sided coin. It's, it's living grace, meaning it's, it's living and breathing and working in you and me. And, and then living it. How does that apply to our everyday life and, and what we do on a daily basis? The, the, the so what, as Stefan Christensen would always say. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 14. Look at those. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. You are not under law, but under grace. Jonathan Merritt says it this way, As much as it may disappoint a fundamentalist interpreter, Paul is not compiling a threatening rulebook. He's mapping out a path whereby a community and its leaders can remain healthy and mature spiritually. He is not setting up a criteria for disqualifying those who aren't good enough, but encouraging leaders to pursue goodness despite their fallenness. If a leader stumbles, and all do if they lead long enough, then Paul's words point the way back home. 
So you see, as we are living grace, someone who is living grace is free from the power of sin. We are free from the power of sin. It's not that that's just what we do anymore. We can look at that thing and say, ah, I'm not going to do that. When we respond to the grace of God, that gift that we don't deserve, and we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that grace becomes living inside of us. We can count ourselves dead to sin because we're no longer controlled by it. I had these marked in, in here in color in my notes, and then I printed it in black and white. Oops. Essentially, essentially there's, there's a couple things here, positive things that you could just jot down really quickly. And, and that was one of them that I just said. Count yourselves dead to sin. I'm dead to sin. It doesn't control me anymore. It does not have power over me. The second thing is this. Offer yourselves to God. On a daily basis, get up in the morning and say, Lord, I'm yours. Give me direction, help me. In the midst of your grace and the power and the force, I offer my life to you. And then he says this, offer every part of yourself to him. Every part. Every part. We are under grace. Now, flip over. I want to look at one last portrait of grace. Turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Back just a, a few chapters from Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The fourth gospel of the New Testament. So much stuff here in this passage. John chapter 4. I, I want to start in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. It's interesting that it says now he had to go through Samaria because a typical Jew would not go through Samaria. They would walk all the way around it. Samaritans and Jews didn't get along well. In fact, Samaritans were pretty second class, if even a class. But it says, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, stop. It's noon. Generally, people would draw water early in the morning or late in the evening because it was cooler in the day. But someone who didn't necessarily want to be seen by others or was embarrassed by their life would probably visit the well at noon. That's this woman. And then the unthinkable happens. Jesus talks to her. A Jew talking to a Samaritan. A man talking to a woman. And Jesus says to her, Will you give me a drink? 
He's there alone. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman says to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? It's like you're talking to me? This just isn't right. This is not normal. And it gives you the explanation there, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In verse 10, Jesus says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? And Jesus' answer to her was, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So as we live this grace, it frees us from the power of sin and and living grace isn't afraid of others. I didn't know how else to say it. it. It's not afraid of others. Jesus, there was no fear for Jesus in talking to this woman. He didn't care what other people were going to say. He didn't care what the disciples were going to say when they came back and found him talking to this woman, which happens. We're not going through that section, but that happens. Jesus doesn't care what she's done. In fact, he knows and still talks to her, as we're going to see in a few moments. This picture of of the grace of God in the New Testament is blowing the minds of the religious right of the day. Because he is grace. And and as we experience the grace of God in our life, we then become a, a trafficker of that grace. We begin dispensing it to others around us, giving it to them, letting it flow from us into the lives of other people as we experience that in our life. Because we are a what? Wretch. No better than the next guy. No, really. I mean that. You're thinking, well, there's people worse than me. No. No, there aren't. Benchmarked against the holy, absolute perfection of God. We are all wretches. And we think to ourselves, well, I don't, this person doesn't deserve my grace. Well, I guess no more than you do when you screw up and make a mistake. I mean, Jesus is pretty clear. The Bible is pretty clear about that. The, the, the bar that we set since set for us. Jesus isn't afraid to talk to her. And, and as we experience grace in our lives, we aren't afraid to go places where it could be looked down on. A missionary in South Africa ministering, loving Muslim people, 
Are you kidding me? Don't they know what those people do? Praying for terrorists. Yes. Yes. They need Jesus too. Desperately. I was on my way to Scotts Bluff, and I think it was the Federated Church in Morrill, but I, or Mitchell. Mitchell. But I can't. Is it Mitchell or Morrill? Mitchell. I, I think it, it was on their little marquee out front. They're taking a mission trip to Cuba. And I thought, wow, that wouldn't have been possible a year ago. Now, whether you agree with the politics and all of that or not, the, the fact of the matter is they see an opportunity to go to a people who probably may or may not have had the opportunity to hear. They're setting aside any sort of racism or any sort of, socio, sort of socioeconomic bars or whatever and saying, we're going to go minister to those people. We're going to be traffickers not of Cuban cigars, the other direction, but of grace. Of grace. We did a thing here a few months ago, quite a few months ago, where we prayed for 30 days for the Muslim world. And, and I read stories every day about Muslims and, and terrorists who are surrendering their life to Jesus Christ. Living grace isn't afraid to do that. Living grace isn't afraid to talk to their neighbor or give grace when their neighbor does something that they don't appreciate. That's living grace. And more and more each day as the Holy Spirit works in your life, you will be a bigger trafficker of grace. Drinking every day from the well of grace that is the Holy Spirit. Never to thirst again. No, living grace isn't afraid of others. Living grace is also resurrection and life. Living grace comes despite our past. That's number three. Living grace comes despite our past. You could be sitting here today thinking, ain't no way God could forgive me for the things that I've done or thought. John 4, verses 15 through 19 goes on. It says this, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Finally, she says, the solution! No more work. We think that sometimes, don't we? I'm a Christian. I'm saved by grace, so God should just bless me and things should just come left and right and and I should be health and wealthy and happy and... That's kind of what she's thinking, I think. Jesus says to her, which is an odd response to her statement, I think, because it's like he didn't even hear her, right? She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he says, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. And he says, you're right when you say that you have no husband. (laughs) I love that little back and forth. The fact is, he says, you have had five husbands and the man that you have now is not your husband. Could you just see the blood leaving her face when he said that? A random Jew at the well knows intimate details about my life. (laughs) 
her response to that is, what you have said is quite true. (laughs) Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. No kidding. (laughs) Right? Yes. And more. Now, her life was a mess. A total mess. And Jesus knew all of that mess, yet he still went to the well and talked to her, wasn't afraid, and talked to her about truthful things, saving things. And as he's talking to her, maybe he knows, maybe she, maybe she gets married, maybe she moves out, maybe she continues to live with, I don't know. She will fall again, just as you and I will fall. But yet Jesus goes on in his life to die for her and for you and for me. He poured out his grace on her. Even though she misunderstood what's happening in the world, she didn't get it all. She had not all the right answers. He would still surrender himself on the cross for her. And I wonder where you are today as you sit here. Are you thirsty? Have you been drinking from the well of life, trying to quench a thirst that can only be quenched by Jesus Christ himself? Trying to fill your life up with relationships or sex or substances. Maybe it's a job or the seeking of power or notoriety. You're trying to find significance and you just keep coming up empty. It's because you're drinking from the wrong well. You're drinking from the well of water of the world. And if you would drink from the well of grace, this living water, (laughs) Jesus, here it is. Jesus thinks the world of you despite all of those things. Jesus continues to pour out his grace on our lives despite those things. Will we continue to look for love and grace and significance in all the wrong places? Probably some of them. But we're in that process. We're in that process. But not because we're, we're not looking in all of those places because we're attempting to prove ourselves to God. We won't look in the right places if we stop. Wow, I just really messed that up. Will we continue to look for love and grace and significance in all the wrong places, having drank living water? I don't think so. But not because we're attempting to prove ourselves to God, but in a response to what he has done and is doing in our life. Because because our lives, my life, has literally been changed right before my eyes. As God transforms our lives, we begin to be grace-filled and forgiving and patient and kind. 
with those around us who are different place in this journey. Discipleship is a process. Transformation takes place over time. Let's go on to verse 20. We're going to do it. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, she says, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, when we will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. And the woman says, Interesting, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. I've heard it. I've heard the prophecies. And I love this. Then then Jesus declared, I, the one who's speaking to you, I am he. It's me. And if the blood rushed out of her head when he knew her past sins, I can imagine the joy that came about in her life when she realized that it was him. Because I think she did. You see, living grace proclaims that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That living grace in us flows out of us and then we can't help but proclaim it. Jesus reminded Lazarus' sister mother in John chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, that he is life. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Even though you die, you're going to live. You'll never thirst again. It's, it's eternal. And, and Martha replied in, in a similar way that, that this woman did, I think. She says, Martha says, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. You are him. Jesus proclaimed it to those around him as he lived his life. His disciples did after. This group of men, young, uneducated men, became traffickers of grace and truth. Why? Because they experienced a change in their life. And you will too. We do too. And as we continue to surrender ourselves and benchmark ourselves to a perfectly holy God, not to other people, beholding his grace and all its beauty, we'll live it more and more and more and more and more. Will three-hour-old babies stop dying? No. Will evil stop showing its head in the world? No. But every day as we live in that, we become a trafficker of grace to those around us. Process, our life is changed and theirs will be too, supernaturally. 
Look down at verses 39 through 42. This is what I think is just amazing. Many of the, because that woman left the well and she went back to town. And then the disciples had this, oh my gosh, I can't believe you were talking to her conversation with Jesus. And he tries to kind of teach them in this part because they're on this journey too, this discipleship journey. And then it says this in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. The only way they believed in her testimony was because it was real in her life. She wasn't just spewing words. Change had happened in her life. She experienced grace. She says, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to this woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Have you experienced grace? Have you believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord? That he walked this earth, which he did? Surrendered yourself to him? I love that. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard it ourselves. We have heard it. We have drank. We have tasted living water. Have you tasted it? Have you benchmarked yourself to a perfect God and found yourself wanting and received the gift? I pray that that's true of you. And and I pray that that this week, as you continue to experience life, that you have in your life living grace and that you live that grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this, this message. Thank you for this gift. Thank you that, Lord, I pray that, that we would leave here today recognizing how incredible this gift is. Lord, if there's somebody here today who this is the first time they've ever heard anything like this, maybe they've never been to church before, this is the first time, I pray that your spirit would touch them. and pray that they would continue to seek. Because, oh, life is amazing in your grace and eternity eternity in heaven. Amazing. Now, Lord, as we conclude our service with a song and as we give of our tithes and our offerings, Lord, I pray that, that this just would be something that we hear today, but that as we leave here, that, that, that our lives truly would be changed by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Make sure you stop at the transformed table. Wait if you have to to get a book. Um, Sign up for a small group. And then uh, don't forget the reveal study. If you don't have internet at home, there's two computers downstairs in the atrium classroom that are set up to to take the survey. Maybe you could take 15 minutes after church and do that. And uh, if you would put those connect cards in the offering plates as they come by as well, I'd appreciate that. Thanks. Let's sing this. Amen. That's a great message.